Please find again page 951 and the book of Zechariah where we are studying at the moment. I have just three preparative words to say. First, uh, I must say, when it was announced it was a picnic at the 9.15, and I, I suddenly felt what a glorious liberation. I no longer have the responsibility to decide whether or not we can go to the picnic. Of all the great burdens I had as vicar of Fullwood, that was the greatest of all. And should any of you newcomers uh, hear the comment that it always used to be nice on picnic day, don't believe a word of it. Uh, it was sometimes, and sometimes it wasn't. Have a good picnic today. Uh, my second preparative word is that... Um, those who are observant will, may have noticed my wife isn't here. Uh, it's not that she's left me or she's unwell. Uh, she made one of her rare appearances at 9.15 this morning since our daughter Catherine's been over a couple of days because her husband is where uh, Paul is or has been uh, this great conference in Jerusalem. So she felt a bit lonely, so I came to see the old folk for a couple of days. And my third comment is that the very observant will notice that I'm wearing a collar and tie. I, I would hate anybody at the end of the service only to remember that vicar of wearing a collar and tie when he should be wearing a clerical collar. I do hope you understand. There are two reasons. Uh, one is a secondary one. You'll discover in a minute there's, there's a bit in this passage all about robes and I've got something to say and it fits nice with a collar and tie. Uh, but uh, the, the more important reason is, I must confess, I was just too lazy to ch take one shirt off and put another shirt on in between the 9.15 and 11. I asked the church warden for permission. He said it was quite all right. Uh, I hope, Caroline, you, uh, you will point out to Paul I am not trying to do a revolution while your husband is away. Uh, Andrew is keeping the uh, traditions going over there. But it's amazing what people do remember. Yeah. Oh, well, there we are. Back to the, the, the prophecy of Zechariah. Years ago, when I was a, a teenager, I, I was a Sunday school teacher for a short time. I'm sure I wasn't up to it, but I was. And I had a lad in my Sunday school class who never listened to a word I said. Uh, and then I'd ask him, Michael, what have I just said? And he always knew. It was quite remarkable, really. That nothing worse than the person you think you've caught them out, and they always know. And I was telling that story to a, an elderly gentleman in the same church who remembered me. I oh, said, just like you were when I taught in Sunday school. So there you are. Uh, nothing changes. And when I was a child in Sunday school, in very simple days, we didn't have all the excitement. I mean... In spite of the children we were at the Oaks, there were still quite a few here in 9.15. There were crowds of them. We went to Sunday school. Sunday afternoon, we were pushed there by our parents. And we always asked questions. And every question we asked, the answer was always Jesus. Have you noticed that? Every, and we were so embarrassed, we wouldn't dare say it, you know. Every time the answer was Jesus. A bit boring, really. But you see, the intriguing thing is, not boringly, but excitingly, when you come to Scripture and the answer, who's it all about? The answer is Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. And you can't get further away from that in this passage. Joshua, chapter 3, the high priest, uh, he and Zerubbabel, remember we're doing this series, and Ed reminded us with the, uh, uh, the other week, we, we saw the, the scheme of things in Zechariah, that we're talking about 500 years before Christ, we're talking about the coming of Christ, we're looking on to the new Jerusalem, it's all here, but in the centre is Jesus. Joshua, you see the name, is exactly the same as Jesus, the Lord says, Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And even more, we're only doing a series up to chapter 6 of Zechariah. But if we look to the second half of the book, Jesus becomes even more the centre and a very remarkable picture of Jesus. Chapter 9, he's riding into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, uh, going to be the king, proclaiming himself king, a king of peace. What a strange way for a king to come into his kingdom. 
Kings rode on chargers, on great horses. A donkey? It was almost a farce. But he was that kind of king. He was going to be different. Well, that's in chapter 9, and our Lord knows it and prophesied it. In chapter 11, there's a picture of a shepherd who is sold for 30 pieces of silver and the money given to a potter's field. Have you come across that before? You couldn't have a closer link with the story of Jesus, Judas and Jesus. In chapter 12, it talks about the day when those who will mourn because they have pierced him, pierced with his side. Oh, Zechariah is very much linked in. And one day they will mourn because of it. Chapter 13 is all about a, a fountain of cleanness to clean the unclean people of God. And in chapter 14, you get Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives with his feet there, coming again the king. This is tremendous stuff. This is Jesus' stuff. But it's not just Jesus. It's the Jesus of the cross. It's the Jesus who would triumph, even through suffering. And it's the Jesus who will finally come again. So we're on him. But we're also on uh, ourselves. It is true, he stands supreme. He is the high priest. That's why we had our second reading about uh, the priesthood of Christ. And we'll come back to that later. But it's also about us. When I was ordained those 50-something years ago, I don't think I ever read Zechariah, but somebody gave me a verse to take with me. And the verse to take with me was Zechariah 4, 6, which we just ended on. Wonderful verse, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I hope that's been an inspiration to me over all these years of ministry. It's a very important word to, Ze Ze to Joshua and Zerubbabel, the spiritual and the secular leader were trying to restore Jerusalem. It was very important to them and it was giving them hope because it was, we'll see again in chapter 4 and verse 10, it was a day of small things. It wasn't big and exciting and yet they were told that by God's Spirit exciting things could happen. We pray for that for the church as a whole. Do pray. Paul's coming back today from this great conference in Jerusalem. All I hear uh, from my contacts is good. It sounds very promising. And it may just be by the grace of God that we shall see some real alignment and reformation. It really is, could be quite exciting. And so we need to pray for Paul and others who are coming back with that vision and that we might see what God is saying to us. And while it may look like the day of small things, it won't be headline news in the media. You notice, haven't you? If they'd fallen apart and had a row in Jerusalem, the press would have had headline news. It upsets them when they aren't having a row and falling apart, you see. They don't want to know that kind of thing. So these are days when we rejoice at the wonder of the fact that uh, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. But there's another thing about this, these two chapters as we look at them. It was, of course, for these people 600 years before Christ. It was, of course, for them very significant. Two things bothered them. One was they'd been in exile for 70 years. And they'd been in exile, why? Because of their disobedience. Because of their sin. For three days this week, Martin and I are going to a, 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 a way days for a church in Hull. They managed to have a way days during the week. They do things properly. And we're going off to, to lead this. And I'm doing the book of Daniel. doing five studies in Daniel. And Daniel begins, you see, with a promise, with a statement that the Lord delivered the people of God into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord was in charge and the exile was God's judgment on his faithless people. 
And they needed to know that God had forgiven them. They need to know the past had been dealt with. They were starting again and they wanted to know his peace. But they also wanted to know that they could begin to do things. Could, it be this, could anything happen in the future? So they wanted peace about the past and power for the future. Have you ever noticed how when, when there's some terrible event, some awful catastrophe, some family uh, tragedy, uh, and things happen that shouldn't happen, somebody comes rather tearfully on television and says, we must make sure it never happens again. And we know it always will. Whatever we do, it always will happen again because that's the world in which we live. But that's how they thought. Exile, we deserved it, we must make sure it never happens again. And the promise to the church today, as the promise to these people then, is that we may have, for the past, peace. For the future, power. You remember Jesus when he came back from the dead in John chapter 20, when he came into the upper room, he raised his hands and said, Peace be with you. Not just the ordinary Hebrew greeting, but he showed them his hands on his side and said, Peace be with you. Those side pierced, as Zechariah said it would be. He said, that's how peace comes. It was costly. And then he said to them, As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He was offering them peace for the past through his death and power for the future by his Spirit. And so let's look at those two things, shall we? Chapter 3 is peace through the Saviour. Chapter 4, power through the Spirit. And I'll finish in good time for you all to enjoy the picnic uh, wonderfully. I wouldn't like the picnic to start late because the vicar, ex-vicar had preached too long. So you're all right. Relax. First of all, peace through the Saviour. Chapter 3. Satan's power resisted is the first note of this chapter. Satan's power resisted. It's a law court. God is the judge. Joshua is in the dock, the high priest. And Satan is the prosecuting counsel. And in a way, that's the story of mankind. You get get the same story in the book of Job, that remarkable book of Job, where God says, isn't my servant Job wonderful? And Satan says, go on. Job's only wonderful because you let him have everything. You start bringing trouble in his life and you'll see he'll curse you. And so God allowed Satan to do the accusing. And Job, through many tribulations, came through triumphant. It's a story of everybody's life. You see, Satan wants to say, quite straightforwardly, we don't deserve it. And you see what he's doing here. God says, this is a man, verse uh, 2, snatched from the fire, a brand snatched from the fire. Yes, he's come with dirty clothes, but I brought him out and I'm going to put new clothes on him. But Satan is saying, you, Joshua, you're not fit to be a priest. Look at your filthy garment. Oh, and I know. Satan says to me, you're not worthy to be a preacher. And the answer is he's right. And the answer is he was right then. But you see, it's not because we are worthy. It's because God in his mercy has dealt with the past and given us a new hope. One of the great hymns we used to sing, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I can stand before the throne of God faultless. Don't be silly. I've got many faults. But I'm faultless because I'm clothed in Christ. And that's the glory of this picture. And Satan's accusation. That's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul can take up this theme and say, 
Who is going to condemn us? Well, the only one who can condemn is God. And he's justified us in Christ. And so Satan's power resisted. Secondly, sin's pollution removed. This is the great moment. The great moment when God gives Joshua new clean clothes. This is where I went off at a digression at 9.15 and forgot what I was doing at one stage. Never mind. Uh, but I am going to go off on a, on, a, on a similar digression just for a moment because people do get bothered about little things. When uh, Joshua is given this new robes and a clean turban's put on his head and so on, it is not anything to do with robes that clergy wear in the 21st century. You'd be surprised how people do think these things. Uh, and it's, it, because I'm a great believer in the priesthood of all believers. This is to do with what we all do, not what some people wear. And I did go on this digression to point out that there nowhere in the New Testament is any minister called a priest. If you want to get me upset, call me a priest, and I get quite twitchy. I was well brought up, and I know my Bible, and I am never, there's not one single word in the New Testament of any minister being a priest. Thank God for that. We are the priesthood of all believers. I remember when we once went to a, a confirmation service somewhere else, not in Fullwood, when the bishop wore his sort of mitre. We don't have bishops wearing mitres in Fullwood. I always made it quite clear what they wear when they come to Fullwood. But if they, in other churches, they do. And one of our kids, it was a long time ago, and they were quite young, they say, why is that gentleman wearing a tea cosy on his head? That is rather nice. I thought that. Well, you see, we are not meant to go back to being priests. We are not priests at all. Now, there was a time when what we battled with was whether you wear the right robes or the wrong robes. This is not unimportant. Right robes or wrong robes. If I were wearing my robes, what would I have on? Oh, I'd have a cassock and a surplice and a, star, and a scarf, a scarf and my academic hood. There you are. And that would say, what would it say? It said, I'm a teacher. They were the garb of a teacher. Incidentally, clerical collars are a quite modern innovation. 19th century modern innovation with clerical collars. Before that, they did wear ties. But the, the academic robes said he's a teacher. And they were distinct from the Roman robes which said there are priests who are offering a sacrifice. So thank God this passage is not suggesting for a minute that we need priests to do sacrifice. He's done it once for all. Thank God for that. And may God never take us back. The Hebrews reminds us as once priest has offered one sacrifice for sins. But what it is saying is that all of us, whether we're laymen or clergy, are in the priesthood of all believers. And we thank God that we've been given new garments. We're clothed in his righteousness alone. In the book of Isaiah, when the, as Isaiah is called in the chapter 6, a chapter which is great inspiration in my call to the ministry, when Isaiah is called in chapter 6, do you remember what is a crucial moment? In Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord touches the lips of Isaiah and he says, I have touched your lips, your sin is taken away, your iniquity is taken away, your sin purged. Isaiah needed not inspired lips, he needed cleansed lips. The inspired lips help, but the cleansed lips are uncertain. This is where I did get lost at 9.15, but it came back to me. Uh, I used to minister for a long time with a great friend called Eric Alexander, who is a uh, Presbyterian minister in Scotland, but he's retired like I am. 
And I always remember, we were reminiscing on one occasion, Eric and I, exact age, same age. We used to do the young people's meetings together in days gone by at the Keswick Convention. And Eric Alexander, I remember reminiscing with me and saying, Philip, what happened to you when you were called to the ministry, when you were examined by the board? And I, we, I told him, he said, do you know, he said, when I was examined for the Presbyterian ministry, they spent ages checking on my intellectual academic ability. They were very concerned about my social skills, uh, getting alongside people. They were very worried about how I would be able to cope with administration. But, Philip, nobody asked me had I been born again. Nobody seemed to bother about the thing that really mattered. And I want to say quite simply, this is a reminder to us that what God can, the people God can use are those who have been cleansed, those who have been born again. Skills of academic ability, skills of Swiss people, yes, they're a plus to be used in diff different aspects of service. But without the first, the, the rest are pointless. And sin's pollution removed enabled Joshua to be ready for service. Satan's power resisted, sin's pollution removed. And thirdly, the servant's purpose restored. You see what happens from verse 6 onwards? Now he's got the clean garments on. Now Satan has been dealt with. Now he says, right, I've got a job for you to do. And it's an intriguing job, isn't it? It's got two sides to it. Look at the big if in verse 7. If you walk in my ways, if you keep my requirements, then you'll govern my house. Then you will point to the branch, the stone, all pictures of Jesus. He's always there. He is always the branch. He is the stone the builders rejected. Now the task of Joshua and Zerubbabel was first to walk in God's ways and then to point to the one who alone can bring peace. Now, please note that. We'll see in a minute what God is going to ask us all to do for the future. But we have, first of all, to be sure that we are, by God's grace, cleansed, walking in his ways. Now, there is always an element which says, if I get to heaven by grace, if I stand on that day because Christ died for me, however I live, does it matter whether I bother about holiness? But you say about Paul's teaching, keep on sinning because God is a God of grace. Paul says, God forbid. When I realize how much I owe to him, the least I can do is to want to walk in his ways. I would not work my soul to save, for that my Lord has done but I would work like any slave for love of his dear son. I quoted that doggerel, the Friday Club on Friday. I quote it again. But that's true. I don't work my soul to save because it can't be. My Lord has done it, but I would now work like any slave because of what he's done for me. And it's only when I'm doing that that I can point to the branch and the stone as the one who's changed my life. And because of that, verse 10, that lovely picture... If you know your Old Testament, this idea of sitting under a vine and fig tree is a picture of peace. And do you do like that? I should hate to sit under a vine and a fig tree. I can't imagine anything worse. I should get twitchy within half an hour sitting under a vine and a fig tree. But it's a symbol. It's a symbol of actually peace. The neighbourhood's at peace. Yeah. Have you thought what that means? There is later on in Zechariah a picture of heaven or a picture of the new Jerusalem. And it says, little children will play in the streets and old men and women will sit in the streets. Just ponder 
Do children run about the streets safely today? Do old people walk the streets without fear? The answer you know. You know the answer, don't you? And the, the challenge to Christians is that we shall only be able to get peace between man and man when we've got peace with God. And that's the great New Testament theme. Ephesians 2, where because there is peace with God, there can be peace between man and man. Peace through the Saviour. I wonder if you found that peace. They needed it for, to start again. We need it to start again. And if I want to live this week to the praise of God, let's first of all be sure that I know I'm at peace with God, that I am looking to Him as my Saviour. But secondly, power through the Spirit. This is the challenge to Joshua and Zerubbabel. And the challenge to them is because they were doing it in a day of small things. Uh, they, were st- they were going to lay the foundation of the temple. And in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12, when Ezra tells a story of how they did that, from a historic point of view, it's a very interesting verse. It says, the people who remembered the old temple in all its glory, Solomon's temple, when they saw this new temple being built, they, were just, they, they wept. It'll be such a poor comparison. Some were rejoicing, some were weeping, and it says, you couldn't tell the difference, so loud was the noise. It was a day of small things. The new temple wouldn't be like the old. But God would bless and use it. With our daughter coming over a couple of days, we had a sort of family do yesterday in Bradford with our son Stuart and his family. And we were just talking a little bit about, since my son's in the ministry and our son-in-law's in the ministry, we were just talking a little bit about the challenge of our day. It just reminded me. Do remember... We, in some ways, are very blessed here. We have a lot of a challenge ahead of us, but we are blessed. The school where my son is chaplain, it has service an estate in Bradford, in which now there is not one single place of Christian worship. In fairness, the Roman Catholic Church are the last to give up, but there's now not one single place of worship. And there are thousands and thousands of people living on that estate. They feed his church. They feed a school and things are happening in the school and kids' clubs are happening and people are coming to faith. What do you do with children who come to faith when there's no church of any sort? No living community can be seen. Oh yes, there's a parish church somewhere that's the parish of them, but it's outside this estate. It's just a reminder to us as we pondered it. We talked about, you know, Catherine's husband and Paul and others in Jerusalem dealing with the big issues and they are very important. But somewhere we've got to remember, we live in a day of very small things. Somewhere, the church of Jesus is hardly there at all. It is hardly recognisable. So the challenge comes to us, what are we going to do about it? Well, this promise, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit comes. Two things. What God requires, what God supplies. If, if you're very good at numbers and you're very good at, at, at sort of pictures, you can work out how many lamps there were in chapter 4, verse 2, and uh, how it all fixed up. You can work out your lovely bit of engineering. Uh, you can either, there are either 7 or 49, I assure you. It can be either 7 or 7 sevens. Uh, and it's a picture. The whole picture is clear if the detail's not there. That is, it's light shining, 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 and 7 is perfect. You probably know, don't you, that the symbol of the old Israel, Judaism, is the seven-branched candlestick. One candle 
and seven branches. That's partly it. A very interesting thing happens in the New Testament. When you get to Revelation chapter 1, and it tells you in the heaven Jesus is seen as walking amongst the seven lampstands, they're different. It's not one branch and seven. They're all separate. He's walking amongst them. I don't believe we shall ever see a, a one church in the whole world. Organisationally, I don't think it'll ever happen. I don't want it to happen particularly. What makes them one is not that they've got the branch, but they've got the Saviour. And what makes the churches one? Last week I was preaching in a very lively, lovely little Baptist church near Wigan. Oh, great. Lovely to be there. Lovely to be here. People of God who belong to Christ cleansed, seeking to be lights wherever they are. And what God requires is that we be lights that are shining. And the two olive trees, well, they're the ones who are called to the leadership. They're Joshua. There's a rubble. I'm allowed to do it in his absence. Please pray for Paul. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very important age in which Christian leadership is being called to be leaders. They need courage. They need wisdom. They need to be true to the word of God and yet somehow show out the grace and the love of God. That's beyond ability, human ability. For Paul and people like him, these are urgent days in which we live. And the olive trees are, are those who are called to leadership or helping the rest of us to be lights shining. But if the Lord requires that, what does he supply? Well, he supplies, of course, his spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. I, I, I used to, my mind always goes back to that. I talked about Sunday school days. I don't know about your Sunday school days. We seem to have the story of David and Goliath every other week. One of the great stories of David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den. These were the sort of things you, you knew off by heart when you were a kid. And we all got the wrong idea of a David and Goliath story. The message should have come through. You see, the, the crunch bit of the David and Goliath story, if you remember it, is not that uh, just that David was prepared to go and fight Goliath. Do you remember the, the in-between bit when King Saul said, you must be joking. Well, that, you won't find that in Scripture, but that's a general implication. You must be joking. You're going to fight him? Yeah. He's defying the Lord of hosts. Okay, says Saul, if you want to go and fight uh, Goliath then try on this armour of mine. And he tried to dress David up in the armour of Saul to go and fight. And so David said, I can't move in this life. No. And he took his sling and his stones. Now, this to me is the crucial bit. He didn't win by trying to be as much like Goliath as possible. He won by being true to what he was. A shepherd who knew God, who'd helped him to defeat the bear and the lion. The church is never at its most ludicrous than when it tries to be like the world. Let's get as like the world as possible, take the world's techniques and the world ideas, and the world laughs. We cut a sorry spectacle. David dressed in Saul's armour. But when he went with the weapons he knew how to use, and he went against the man who was powerful... With all his weakness, he won because he went in the name of the Lord. Paul says we have weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds of Satan. Let's remain true to our world, our trust in prayer and in witness in the power of the Spirit and the Word of God and we shall win. Forget those and we're a sorry spectacle. And walking along yesterday along the banks of, a, of a, the, the canal uh, outside Bradford with talking to my son a bit about future ministry 
it's, it's good for me to hear him speak. You know, there is a sense in which we're in days when the church could become so irrelevant in the eyes of the world that we might as well pack it up. And yet, and yet, guys like him are still full of confidence. Because the gospel is true, we're bound to come through at the end. So let's trust in the might and the power of his spirit. That's our promise. In a few minutes, please don't look at it now, we're going to sing a great hymn. We're allowed as preachers to choose the last hymn. And we're going to sing before the throne of God. I know you've sung it several times recently, but we're going to sing it again in a few minutes. But don't go look at it just yet. I'll tell you when you can look at it. Uh, but we're going to sing that because it is a reminder to us that uh, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. If Satan doesn't sometimes tempt you to despair, I think you're not doing much spiritually. Satan tempts me to despair often. And he tempts me to despair when I look not just at my life, but at the world and the church. And I think, is it possible, Lord? Do you remember Ezekiel, the story of Ezekiel 37? Remember when God said to Ezekiel, showed him the valley of dry bones, and God said to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? To which came the perfect answer, Lord God, you know. That was the answer. Not, not a hope. Or not, of course. It's impossible humanly, but Lord God, you know. And he can make dry bones live, and he can breathe into dry bones by his spirit. And that's what he wants to do. Now, you are allowed to take up your service sheet now, because I'm not, not going to sing it yet. I'm just going to take, draw your attention to the third last line. The third last line of the last verse. Because I want just to take, make a note of this, and I'm finished. Third line up, last verse, my life is safe with Christ on high. Now the experts will remember that the original hymn said, my life is hid with Christ on high. And I'm making a plea, though I've left the word safe in, but I'm making a plea for the word hid as being even more important. For you see, that word, this verse, this uh, hymn written by a lady of, in the 19th century, uh, she, I'm sure, was basing it on Colossians 3, verse 3. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And what does that word hidden mean? Well, it means partly safe. Whenever we go on holiday, Margaret always makes sure she's hidden all the uh, important things that we don't take with us so that we'll not lose them. The trouble, and so that no burglar will find them, that's the important thing. Uh, six months later, when we come back from holiday, we're still trying to find them. So we, clearly the burglar wouldn't have a hope. We can't find him. He won't. He certainly won't. But he said, they're hidden. They're safe. Safe. But it means more than that. You see, there's a hiddenness about being a Christian. Jesus is not yet standing on the Mount of Olives. He is priest king in heaven. We'll come to chapter 6 here where the, the priest is crowned. He is cry, crowned as king. But it isn't obvious in our world. Why doesn't God do something about it, cries the unbeliever. The world actually doesn't seem like Christ is on high. And the church doesn't demonstrate that we are rampantly victorious. Like a mighty army moves the church of God is more by faith than by reality. It's hidden, but it's true. Now here's my last thought. There are two words in the New Testament that fit this passage perfectly. Well, same word, used twice. The, the word is, 
I was asked by a 9.15 person to tell him what it is in the Greek. So the Greek is parakletos. And the word parakletos is used for the comforter, the paraclete. And Jesus calls the Spirit the comforter, John 14, once or twice. The Spirit who is the comforter. Okay. But the same word is used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 of Jesus. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And that Greek word advocate is parakletos. So the same word, just think of it. We have God's representative in our hearts, the Spirit. We have our representative in heaven, our Saviour, who died for us. With that double blessing, how can we fail? Let's pray.